Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, if you've ever wondered how quantum physics and spirituality can meet and explain each other, well, this is the episode for you. We have on the show quantum physicist Amit Goswami. And Amit is on the leading edge of quantum physics studies of consciousness and spirituality. And our conversation is revolutionary, to say the least. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Amit Goswami. How are you doing, Dr. Amit? Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I'm looking forward to our conversation about quantum physics and spirituality and how those two worlds seem to be getting closer and closer, despite people's attempts to pull them apart. (laughs) Indeed. You know, we read every day news about how loneliness is becoming an epidemic in America, but we don't realize that the loneliness is because we don't acknowledge love, we don't acknowledge heart, and all this is really ultimately non-acknowledgement of consciousness as the force behind us. Mm. Yeah, belief that matter is everything is really creating havoc in the entire world in the form of global climate change and what have you. Uh, polarization of politics, uh, but people just have no idea. The intelligentsia just completely denies everything is denial. <laughs> you know, it has to be matter is everything. Well, let me ask you, Dr. Me, what began your journey um, of being a renegade a quantum physicist? Because that's what exactly you are, is kind of a renegade because you are connecting quantum physics and spirituality in a field that frowns upon that. Your colleagues, I imagine, frowned upon it when you started to come out publicly like this. What started your journey like this? Well, um, I was very fortunate to have an intuition that there is a better way of doing physics than people do it. People do it like as if physics does not matter to our life, as if it's all about the objective world, material world. But actually, if, if physics has to be the basis of all science, including biology and psychology, including us human beings, then physics got to do better than that. So I have a hunch that quantum physics has the answer for that. The hunch based on something that John von Neumann, a great scientist, um, already pointed out, except that what he suggested, paradoxes could be raised against the way of including consciousness as our personal consciousness. And then one night I was talking with a friend and during that conversation, the insight came to me that the paradoxes all can go away if we realize that consciousness is the ground of all being and matter exists as possibilities of consciousness to choose from. 
that's the solution of the quantum paradoxes. That's, I mean, it, it sounds fantastic. So how can, can you tell me, how do you define consciousness as, as a relation to quantum physics? Exactly. So quantum physics needs consciousness because the quantum idea that objects are possibility waves, this idea is revolutionary. People try to sidetrack it, and that's called the Copenhagen interaction, and that still controls the mind of many physicists. Try to sidetrack this problem of what does the fact that object is a wave mean? Originally, they tried to suggest that objects are waves, but we, of course, do not see them as waves. We only see them as particles, as something that they can brush aside. But the fact is, we can never see a single object as a wave. We always see it. When you measure it, we see it as a particle. So how can you brush that aside? Because single objects can be isolated, and the physics of single objects got to be important for biological systems or psychological systems, or we are a single object. So I was looking at that from that point of view, and then it's obvious. It's obvious that the waves are waves of possibility. Residing in a domain outside of space and time, like the spiritual traditions are telling us all along, that space-time is not the only domain. There is a domain that transcends space and time. Mm -hmm. They are calling it by names like heaven, and there was a lot of misconception about what heaven contains, and that made it easy for the materialist bias to take place historically. But quantum physics is clearly ruling that out because there is a concept called non-locality, which suggests that objects, quantum objects, if correlated, if they interact coming close together, they can communicate instantly. But instant communication is not allowed in space and time. So the fact that they can communicate instantly suggests that there has to be a domain outside of space and time. And that domain is the domain of potentiality, is the domain that we call consciousness, or unconscious to be more accurate, because there is no experience in that domain. This is what we call unconscious, a concept that Freud already introduced even before quantum physics came along. There was the, I've spoken to many near-death experiencers, people who have gone to the other side. Uh, based on their experiences. And they talk about this instant communication, this downloading of information instantly. So it kind of connects with what you're saying. But from a quantum physicist uh, point of view, what does that actually mean, communication instantly? Because I get it in the near-death experience and the afterlife. I get that. Soul-to-soul communication is different. I've heard it from many, many different sources. But from the practical quantum physics world, how do you explain that? It's communication without signals. Right. Communication space and time requires a signal to travel from me to you. But communication outside of space-time works without signals and therefore does not need any time lapse between for communication. In signals always travel with a finite speed. This was Einstein's great discovery called theory of relativity. The speed of light is the maximum speed limit. So in patient time, there is always a signal required for communication and signal must take a certain amount of time to travel the distance between the objects. However, in the 
domain of potentiality where non-locality is possible, non-local communication is possible. What it means is that however the distance between the objects are, the, it doesn't matter. They will communicate instantly anyway. And how that is? Because there is no signal involved. So non-local communication is signal-less communication. So is that kind of the basis of quantum entanglement? That is the basis that we call quantum entanglement. This is the phenomenon we call quantum entanglement. What, can you explain, because I, I, you and I both understand, I, I mean, I can't say I understand quantum entanglement, but I understand some of the basic ideas of it. Can you explain it to the layman of what, what revolutionary quote unquote spookiness that Einstein called it the spooky physics of uh, physics. What is exactly happening and why is it so revolutionary in the idea of quantum physics and quantum mechanics? The spookiness, Einstein called it spooky because uh, to Einstein who discovered the theory of relativity, it is imperative that everything occurs in space and time. Einstein could not conceive outside of space and time. And therefore, he called such communication spooky. But as soon as you accept that there is an outside of space and time, a domain of potentiality, as we call it, then the spookiness uh, is no longer exists because it's inside space and time where the rule is you cannot exceed speed of light for traveling. Right. But outside of space time, there is no such rule. And therefore, any speed, including infinite speed, is possible. And so communication can occur at infinite speed instantly is not spooky at all mm -hmm. because the communication is occurring through the domain of potentiality. And otherwise, think of these two objects. They can communicate through space and time. They can also communicate outside of space and time. Because it, it, so, because from what I understand with, with quantum entanglement, if something happens to a, a neuron or an electron here and you put it on you know, the other side of the room, if something happens to it here, it's connected and, and it instantly happens here. And they kept trying to move it farther and farther away with space and, and time, essentially. And no matter how far away they, I think it didn't do it out into space or something along those lines, were they able to track it to the point where it's just like, well, this doesn't make any sense anymore yes. in the materialistic sense. This is where you are getting tangled up. Think of the electron as possible electrons. Uh -huh. They're the domain of potentiality. Mm -hmm. And so when we say moving apart further and further, they're potentially moving apart further and further. Neither of the electrons are manifested yet. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay. These are manifest electrons. But the manifestation will have the sign that they're communicating before manifestation. How? Because whichever way one electron is manifest, the other electron is correlated with that way. The entanglement cannot be denied. For example, we say if an electron is spinning this way, mm -hmm. then the other one must be spinning the opposite way. But how do the electron know at a distance without any signal? This is the puzzle that Einsteinian relativity physics cannot answer. It cannot happen in space and time. So it must be happening through this domain of outside of space and time. That's the total answer. The thing that confuses us is that we are still thinking that everything is always in space and time. No, whenever you don't look, objects of quantum physics becomes objects of domain of potentiality. 
It's so interesting because again, I'll go back to the near-death experiencers who tell me, we, I always ask, well, what's time like there? And they go, there is no time. There is no time. You know, one minute here could be two weeks there if you want to even try to give it some sort we of revenue. We cannot talk about it. We cannot they, even talk about it because time becomes a potentiality. It's no longer it's, real time like we have in objects and, and physics. But it makes your head hurt to start thinking about these kind of That's things right. because we're based in this kind of space and time yeah. realm, if you will. And yes. to think beyond that, it's kind of like the question is like, well, God has always been, has never had a beginning nor an end, or the source energy has never had a big, that's imp like for us, it's impossible because for us, everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Uh, so it's, it, you start to think like your head starts to hurt after a while. One thing I wanted to ask you, and I've heard this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, that there is something faster than, than light in the space and time, which is the expansion of the universe itself is faster than the speed of light. Is that true? Um, no, these things are very difficult to <laughs> put it that way. It, it, is a, it is the result of very complex theories that we're talking about. Indeed, in general theory of relativity, such statements can be made. But in, in truth, uh, they have nothing to do with what we are talking about. Sure. That is, that is something else completely. We are talking about uh, in a place and time where uh, space is not carved, and therefore all those questions are side issues. In the, if in the presence of carved space, can um, there be speed faster than the speed of light? These are other issues. On Earth, we are doing this experiment. There is no curvature of space here to warrant that kind of issue. There is some conflict between quantum physics and general relativity that is not solved yet. But that's problem of high, high level problem of physics, important only for cosmology, nowhere else. So we should keep those problems separate from this problem. This is problems with right on Earth. <laughs> Fair enough. Things have been separated by a kilometer. We have experimental setup separate by a kilometer. And even then we find that objects are moving faster than the speed of light. No curvature of space. You cannot give that kind of argument here. Mm. So where is this faster than light communication coming from? And it has to be quantum non-locality according to a domain outside of space and time. Because in space and time, this could never happen. Well, let me ask you this. Why do you believe in this? Because you, you are or were inside of the machine. Why do you believe that materialism and materialists have such a difficult time accepting these obvious provable uh, facts about what's happening, our entire conversation. And they're just basically ignoring it. They're just like, ah, it's spooky. They're using like dismissive words like spooky because they don't want to deal with it because it throws their entire foundation of their theories out the window. Why do you think they have such a difficulty in embracing scientific facts? Well, there are ways to, you know, you, you have heard about um, uh, people who can avoid uh, discussion by rational, seemingly rational arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called sophistry, following a Greek word. Ancient Greece had this, they're called sophists, and this still exists. Sophistry is a way of denying reality by giving the appearance of rationality. 
So the appearance of personality is brought about whenever there is some confusion. There is something that we are not quite sure yet. The rational uh, argument that is always made by uh, scientists is that the brain is something of an unknown phenomenon. And therefore, the brain could do things, perhaps, that we have not figured out yet how the brain does it. So they say that although it is true that in principle, non-locality certainly is reality, and therefore we are saying in principle, this unconscious realm does exist, the domain of potentiality, but they're saying it's not relevant to the macroscopic scale in which we become the brain, and it is not us really, there is no us, but it is the brain which does peculiar things. Brain is able to do all kinds of weird things. It's called promissory materialism. It's Karl Popper, a very world-renowned philosopher called this promissory materialism. You cannot argue against promises like this, that someday we'll explain the non-locality of the brain. But this is the contention. Uh, uh, Richard Feynman, who was a very great physicist of the last century, um, he proved that computers cannot do it. And so if you look at brain as a computer, certainly brain cannot do it. But they always say, no, brain is just not a, just a computer. It also can cognize and it can have even non-locality. It can do quantum measurement. So all kinds of things that they say that is promissory. We have enough uncertainty about brain structure to leave a little bit of doubt in everybody's mind and they take advantage of that. <clears throat> so this is going to continue the, I'll tell you the real reason, Alex, it does not take a uh, horrendous intelligence to find the real reason. Real reason is that uh, scientists are rational people. Rational mind separates you from consciousness separates you from this non-local experience. For the non-locality to experience it, brain is not the best vehicle. The vehicle is actually love, which occurs in another organ, which we have, the heart, which has immune system and the heart. But the, it is very difficult to um, need for intellectuals to experience this expansion of consciousness that we call non-locality directly. And because they never experience that, they go along with the fact that, yes, it could be that we are just machines, although they themselves are constantly saying we are creative, we have free will, we are reigning the world, we can make changes, we take ourselves so seriously. But underneath, they believe that all of this could be that this is all just empty and brain is the real actor behind our actions. Right. Go along with it. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's it's like trying to quantify love. It's something that we've all felt in one way, shape, or form, but we can't pin it down. We can't so we really... Cannot it down. We cannot pin it down with concept. We cannot bring it down with rational mind. And so, you know, who um, is going to take us out of this, uh, all this quagmire? I think uh, that is very clear. You know, any uh, seminar that I teach, any courses that Valentina and I, you know, we have a we have a, a PhD program, master's program for quantum science. What we teach our students learn, uh, but um, these materialists will never uh, accept this kind of thing because they will forever be tied by the, the very uh, uh, constriction 
that they suffer from. They never experience heart. They never experience love. Mm. It is a well-known fact that very few of the rationalists experience, ever have experienced the extent of what we call love. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But of course, women do. And you know what I was going to say, that women flock to our courses, majority, 80% uh, that come to quantum physics in this way, quantum science, we call it, are um, women. Women feel the heart much better. Of course, there are people like you and me who also feel the heart. But women, in general, feel the heart much better than men. And this is the saving grace. Yeah. So is this so what you're saying about the establishment of the materialist is basically the Galileo effect? Yeah, it it, it is sort of um, uh, that even before goes even before Galileo, you know, the Descartes statement, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the rational mind is forever attached to the Descartes statement. Mm -hmm. Although neuroscientists themselves have long refuted Descartes, there is a book, even beautiful book, uh, Descartes' Error. Mm-hmm. Descartes was that he did, did not recognize emotions. Uh-huh. Emotions are a parcel of human being. <laughs> so, but that the Cartesian thought that we are just, uh, consciousness is just part of rationality, thinking, that is the big block. Well, I mean, to be, and, and we could, uh, you also could debate too that animals do think at a different level, not maybe as sophisticated as we do, but there is consciousness there. There's consciousness as a blade of grass. And we have to clear the language, Alex. I mean, we knew with all this understanding you're using, you are thinking. No, animals don't think in a different way. Animals do not think, period. But animals do feel. And oh. feeling is enough for cognition. See, if I feel you directly, either I like the feeling or I dislike the feeling. Mm. But is that cognition or not? Is also a cognition. I'm acknowledging I like you, so I embrace you. Or I dislike you, I repel you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cognition. So one can cognize with feeling. And this is what typically animals do. It's very clear from their behavior. They either like or dislike. But mm-hmm. it's the cognize. A pet is a clear example. Oh. They will go to some people. They cognize. Mm-hmm. I like this. And they will avoid some people. With a cat, it's very clear. Very yeah. clear with a cat and very definitely clear with a dog as well. Without question, without question. So let me ask you this: this idea, and this is this is where I want to bring it back to spirituality because this is where I find fascinating the realm of "quote unquote" past the veil, the other side, where we go after we die. How does that is that the idea of multiverses, the idea of other realms? How does that work within? the structure of quantum physics, or does it? it, it, it it's really, uh, again, another red herring, this other universes. Yeah. Um, question does not even arise unless we are thinking of very large scale of things. Other universes, by definition, can commu- cannot communicate with the universe, this universe in any kind of way. Right. So the, the point is that if 
The other universe situation is just not a part of this dialogue. This dialogue, what is happening is a person's brain is incapacitated, heart has failed, person's brain is not working, there is no brain potentiality, poor brain potential anymore, the EEG is clearly showing zero, right? So consciousness is brain dead. Brain is not evoking consciousness anymore. Yeah. Person is brain dead. So this person is now having, coming back after a while when the brain is revived and saying that, oh, I had all these experiences that could not possibly be explained by my past experiences. Those experiences were not in my brain. For example, I experienced myself hovering at the ceiling and looking at my body being operated on. This could not be in my brain already, unless we are already recognizing precognition or something, which scientists do either. So uh, this is the kind of thing, a non-local experience that is taking place, which cannot take place in a material brain. We already are good through that. Mm -hmm. Material objects, unless they are communicating through this consciousness, they cannot have non-local experiences. So uh, in this way, near-death kind of phenomena already suggests that something very different than our usual conceptualization is taking place. But you know, materialists always sidestep this issue. I'll give you an example. Recently, um, uh, Apple News put this worldwide, you know, they do that. They have big, a huge reach. And they were talking about the, an experiment that has been done that somebody reporting near death, when they were being revived, brain's parietal lobe, this is the lobe that's in the slightly in the back from the center. Mm -hmm. in, this is frontal, this is parietal. And part of the parietal lobe goes out of action. It's suspended in the near death people. Now that explanation is actually the explanation of why near-death experiences are out-of-the-body experiences. Because what the parietal lobe does, it gives us an identity with the body. It has all the body images that is, that is processed in the parietal lobe. This is well known. This is, this is where our sense of looking at a mirror, we get, want to get a sense of where we are, an orientation about our body. All that comes from the parietal lobe. So when that is suspended, what happens is that we lose the identity with the physical body and we identify more with mind and feelings. And that's the out of the body experience. We are no longer identified with the physical body. Mm. And it is true that the parietal lobe, we already have predicted that, that parietal lobe should be suspended when that experience happens. But to conclude from that, the brain does it. Now we have a brain explanation of near-death experience. This is completely false because there is no brain. This is not a brain explanation of near-death experience, which also involves non-locality. Mm -hmm. That hovering over your own body being operated upon. That cannot be explained by a material brain because material objects can never have non-local experiences by itself without the help of consciousness. Right. Well, yeah, and, and, and with near-death experiences as well, I've I've spoken to um, doctors and researchers who have talked to thousands, not only thousands of near-death near experiencers in this country, 
mm-hmm. but overseas in in Africa in different cultures, and they're all different. They have similar themes, which is also interesting. How can how can we all kind of generally go through a life review? There's always generally a council of elders. There's might be there's certain elements that are common in many of them. But then when you go to an Aborigine who dies, they're com- they're completely different, but have similar themes, but are presented mm-hmm. in a different manner. Yeah. How is because if it was supposed to be a human thing, then all of us would just go back to the same programming and we're like, okay, we all see the tunnel of light. Okay, we all go down the path, correct? Yeah, so so this this near death experience, some of the memories come from the humanity's collective memory, called collective unconscious. That's the explanation of why they are similar, mm. but not exactly similar. They are described in terms of different images. The imagery is different, but the idea is the same. For example, you see your kins. That idea is the same. What kins depends on the culture. Uh, you see a, a spiritual teacher. Again, depends on the culture. The Western culture, they would see pictures like Jesus. In Indian culture, they would see uh, gods Shiva. and goddesses, yes. uh, etc. Shiva, <laughs> yeah. and so. So it it, it 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 and that makes it very clear that the images themselves that we are seeing is not relevant. But what's behind the images, what they represent, that is the same. So mm-hmm. collective unconscious is a con- concept that. Carl Jung developed that we now have so much evidence that we cannot deny it. Mm-hmm. Um, the explanation of the similarity. Well, I mean, the, even the concept of collective unconscious is non-local. It is, yes, of course, it is always non-local. So we were connected people at one time. We were connected before we became rational. It, everybody more or less agrees that we are when we were hunters and gatherers, there was no rational mind. Mind was very physical. At the later stages of um, uh, the hunters and gatherers era, now people acknowledge that there was there was a phase in which garden agriculture was available. Men and women worked together in the garden with simple instruments like a hoe or a spade. In that era, families developed and love developed, and therefore we were also very connected. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We became non-local with each other. That's now we call it tribal consciousness, but actually it's much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. It's a very deep non-local connections that we had with each other. And that is how we built the collective unconscious. When you are non-locally connected, if you have a memory, I will also have easy access to that memory because we are connected non-locally. So your memory and my memory will be simultaneously made of the same experience. And again, not, not that is not um, in materialism at all. It, it lives That's in beyond. It's, it's beyond, beyond that. Yeah. In materialism, so, no two people can be connected without signals. Only uh, with signals. Because they're sticking only in the physical space and time. That yeah. makes so much more sense now. So when you go beyond space and time, and this, where this quantum entanglement and things like that go, well, let me ask you this then. How can quantum physics explain oneness, this concept of oneness, which, which it seems to be awakening in society now, that we're all connected in one way, shape, or form? 
Yeah, so the explanation is at two levels. One is that oneness itself reflects a non-locality. And why don't we explain, um, experience non-locality in our ordinary consciousness? Because we get conditioned through our memory. The experiences don't come to us directly because of this conditioning. We could, and occasionally it does, those experiences we call by special names, like creative experiences or intuition. But ordinary experience, comes from a state of consciousness that we call the ego. That is an identification with our personal memories, our personal history. So this ego has obviously much more constricted than we are capable of, non-locality oneness. The ego is not one anymore. It's, it's detached from that oneness. This is what causes the problem. So we have to go beyond the ego which requires, in quantum sciences, requires a discontinuous transition, quantum leap. Creativity is a quantum leap. Intuition is a small quantum leap. And this is the thing. Quantum leap requires a accepted, accepting mind. Quantum leap requires an open mind. And this is what the materialists don't have. If you are using your rational mind too much, you lose that flexibility. You're not creative anymore in that sense creative in the quantum sense. Well, let me ask you this. Even Einstein, if I'm I'm not mistaken, even Einstein played the violin to get ideas, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Mm -hmm. or something? So Einstein that is a, Yeah, he was, he took quantum leaps within his work, correct? Yes, yes. He took quantum leaps all the time. He was the greatest quantum leaper as far as outside experiences are concerned. There are bigger quantum leapers, Jesus, Buddha, their examples, but they did not discover in the outside world, they discover in their inside world, the nature of consciousness. Can you explain, then can the materialists explain creativity? Well, they don't, but they sidetrack the issue by confusing creativity. For them, creativity happens because of a reshuffle of the existing knowledge in the brain. So for them, but this is beautiful in a way. Alex, look at this. These AI programs yeah. like ChatGPT, they can be more creative than any human being if you accept the materialist definition of creativity. Right. This is why people are really worried. You have seen this got a lot of publicity. Stephen Hawking, before he died, he had this premonition that human beings are going to be overtaken by this AI. He really was super afraid that human beings are dead, they're gone. Machines are bound to take over because machines are much more creative than us. He was also tied to this definition of creativity. Creativity is just an existing reshuffle of all that is known. But the human being cannot possibly access the kind of access that these machines have, these AI programs have already. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the reason for that fear. But of course, for us, it is very simple. Look, a machine can never be non-local. Therefore, they cannot intuit, they cannot be creative in the quantum sense, they cannot take creative leap to the non-local domain. And therefore, human beings will always be superior to a machine, always be able to do things that a machine cannot do. But the answer lies how we reach this non-local domain most easily. We can reach it through the brain. We can make the brain to take a quantum leap as well. 
However, that is much more difficult because of our rational mind getting supremacy. But the heart is very easily quantum. So we have to find our identity in the heart in order to discover this quantum reality. And this is the problem. So in a way, realizing that we cannot be superior to the machines is good for us because this is the end of the rational era. If you stay with the rational, machines will take over, no question. So we have to find our intuitive and creative quantum domains in order to re retain the supremacy over machines. It, it, because you're absolutely right. These AI that are being created and learning at astronomical speeds right now, like ChatGPT, they are <clears throat> they will have access to all knowledge. All knowledge. All More than everything that exists up to a certain time, they have yeah. access to. More than you or I could ever possibly have access to. But yet, uh, AI is not creating things out of thin air in the way that you or I can create ideas. Out of the potentiality that we talk about. So they don't have access to potentiality. And this never discovered potentiality is always be there because it's infinite. And so human beings will always be superior to machines because well, we me... can bring it down to machine availability, but only after we have done it creatively, then we can put it on the internet and machine will have access to that. But we always have access to the rest of it, rest of the potentiality. But you know, the trick of infinity is that infinity minus infinity is still infinity. So that infinity <laughs> will always be there for human beings to explore, and machine can never equal us. We'll always be steps ahead of machines. And that's because we are able to do things and connect with things in, in a, a quote-unquote spiritual space that a machine could never, which is that love. A machine can't love. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't have that potential. It's a lovely word, Dr. Fess, spiritual space. This domain of non-locality is what the spiritual space or heaven is. That is well, it. Well, from, from the, uh, and please correct me, from the Vedic perspective, from the Vedic text, which I've heard that many quantum physicists uh, have read the Bhagavad Gita and have gone deep into the Vedas because they were talking about these concepts thousands of years ago, thousands, when we were supposedly supposed to be hunter-gatherers, but uh, <laughs> supposedly. Um, you know better than I do because that's not my culture, but I've studied the the Indian culture and Hinduism and the Vedas. And as I've gone deeper and deeper to them, like uh, they were talking about things so, I mean, so vastly far superior to what we even know now that even quantum physicists, uh, I forgot who it was, the, the father of the atomic bomb, um, Isaac, uh, you know who I'm talking about, um, the guy who created the, the atomic bomb. He quoted the yeah. Bhagavad Gita. Uh, uh, yes, exactly. Um, he he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. Can we talk a little bit about um, this, because the non the non-locality uh, and potentiality of the Akashic records, the idea of that, can you talk a little bit about that and how that relates to quantum physics? Yeah, the, 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 indeed, the Vedic uh, researchers, and that's what they are, they don't have to be called mystics. They were researchers of consciousness. They had no material savvy 
material instruments like telescope was not available, so they could not study matter. But they could meditate, and they learned to meditate very, very well, because when you don't have outside distraction, you only can look at inside. You are a researcher, what to do? You study as much as you can what happens inside. And they did with meditation, with creativity, and they discovered these states of consciousness that we are now discovering and explaining. By the way, there is nothing in the Vedas that quantum physics cannot explain. Quantum physics explains everything in the Vedas, in the Vedantas. This is the big power that we have uncovered. It took us 7,000 years, but finally we have understood consciousness as these researchers who are describing it. And not only that, some of us have partially, I don't claim to be enlightened by no means like Jesus or Buddha, but I do claim to have the experience of oneness. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. This is not as far out as people think. Abraham Mazda also described similar experiences. Carl Jung described similar experiences. So these experiences are not that uncommon. They are quite common. In fact, my um, associate, Valentin Onisar, my co-author, she also has experienced non-locality, oneness. So this oneness experience, if you have it, what it is is that you experience yourself much bigger, much more loving, much more inclusive about others. What does that mean? Include my ability to include another in my consciousness is an expansion of my consciousness. Here I am only me. Yeah. And then I include you. That's an expansion of my consciousness. I care for you as much as I care for me. That's an expansion of consciousness. And this expansion, when we are able to do it to an infinite amount, those specific moments, in that moment of realization, I knew that I can love everyone. Not only that, that that ability to love everyone lasted for two entire days before he faded away. So leaving me no doubt that this is this is something very real I'm experiencing. Mm. And how so, did you, how did you get there? How did you get there? I I, I had to do a seven day you know, meditation, nonstop meditation, in all waking hours to get there. It, it's it's a it's a uh, even to describe it is hard because you know how do you meditate every moment of the time? But what happens is part of it is unconscious, part of it is conscious. We call it a dooby dooby do process. Mm. But that's what happened, and I was tenacious. I was determined that I'll do it as long as it takes. So on the seventh day of doing this. I went out of my office uh, at the university where I worked, and uh, there was meadows just outside, and was walking among the trees. And Oregon is beautiful, you know. Mm -hmm. So, had all of a sudden the world become one with me, because oh. I experienced that unless you have it, you will never get the flavor of it. But that's the only way to describe it. I became one with everything. Let me ask you: Do you believe that there is more? people like yourself, more quantum physicists and materialists who are starting to come over to this side, if you will, to start explaining things, being accepting of these ideas, this new generation coming up? Now, there are more quantum physicists. Uh, Handy 
staff who just passed away very recently, he wrote a book which is very similar to mine. Um, Casey Blood also has written a book, uh, Radgar's professor, now retired, I think. Um, so there are quantum physicists, um, but there are many more from interpersonal psychology, Stan Grof, for example, Tardium, I already have mentioned, Asagioli, that's an Italian great transpersonal psychologist, Horidas Chaudhary, uh, that's another transpersonal psychologist. So there are much more people in psychology and uh, much fewer people in quantum physics that has this kind of experiences. When you have this kind of experiences, by the way, you mentioned near-death, all those near-death people like Raymond Moody, who has researched it, they understand quantum physics perfect. So for them, it is simpler. For people who are just rationalists, use mathematics all their life and cannot go beyond mathematics, it's very hard for them. So I have no grudge against anybody why they can't accept this. Um, I only just pray for their opening up. Um, people who are really creative can. Like Richard Feynman, towards the end of his life, he started going to SLN Institute, one of the meccas for consciousness research. Mm. So um, the two great ones. If Einstein was alive right now, I'm sure he would get into consciousness research. So, uh, but the unfortunately today, people we give Nobel Prize to, they're of a different kind than in the olden days where people really were creative. Well, aren't there, aren't, and please correct me if I'm wrong, haven't there been given Nobel Prizes to uh, theoretical physicists and quantum physicists as well? They were, uh, they were up to a point, but now who we give Nobel Prize to often are just experimenters who do just an experiment which is very limited in terms of its scope. Although this year, this year the, the Nobel Prize was given to the discoverer of non-locality. Right, I, I thought so. So this is an this is an exception. Finally, after forty years, we have given Nobel Prize to Aspe, Alan Aspe, who was instrumental for discovering non-locality. So, so let, me, let me ask you this though: if that's the case, Nobel Prize is the ultimate prize in the world of physics. Doesn't that send a signal? That it should help. It, it should it, help. It should help. It should help. But we need to go further we, because that there is still that barrier. Materialists can always say, but the brain is macroscopic. Brain is high temperature or. Uh, I have already proven that, yes, the brain can indeed invoke consciousness and therefore can experience non-locality to consciousness. You have to understand the quantum measurement theory in the right way. But these arguments still are not accepted by the materialists because they still continue to believe that there will be something new about the brain that we have not found yet that will convince everybody that this phenomena can be explained by the brain. In the meantime, we can use sophistry because part of the part of what the brain does, they can create as a red herring, like the example I gave you. Parietal lobe is dormant in near-death experience. Therefore, say, ah, oh, we have found the material explanation. Because of this, we are having near-death. That doesn't explain the entire near-death experience, namely the non-locality, explicit non-locality that they report. 
they were able to see their own body operated upon. How could they see that without locality? Verif and verifiable too, because they could tell tell the doctors what they were doing, and there's like there's no way. There's no way that they, could, they could find out from general considerations. Yes. Correct. So then, then perfect example of what we're talking about is the placebo effect in the medical field. It's unexplainable. <laughs> it is spooky and they can't <laughs> grasp it because they only are stuck in the materialist world, the world the doctors in general. God bless them. Look, if, if I get shot, don't rub a, a leaf on me. Uh, <laughs> modern medicine is amazing, yeah. but there is other, it, it can go beyond what the materialists look at and the placebo effect is exact example of that. Yeah, the placebo effect is a clear-cut example of mind over matter. But of course, even calling it placebo effect, they try to, that's sophisticated. So right. it, it, I call it placebo effect when it's an anomaly, how the mind or really consciousness, we just use the word mind to confuse ourselves. The right. word mind is mind is not consciousness. Mind is an aspect of consciousness. Consciousness use the, uses the mind to give meaning to physical objects and other objects. Consciousness goes beyond both matter and mind. This is the point. But the materialist confuses everything by using these Cartesian words. Descartes started mind is consciousness. And so we begin to think, okay, mind is always associated with the brain. Mm. And therefore, uh, brain, it could be a brain phenomenon, and they cite neuroscience results as an example of, for example, we think, and today we can move things by thinking. We can we can make those currents, amplify those currents, and they can start moving objects. Or we can convert it into words that are spoken. We can convert our mental thoughts into words that a computer will, will speak. Uh, so in this way, we create the confusion that as if our mind is being created by our brain. But the point is this, the brain and mind are associated, they're non-locally correlated. That does not mean that they are, one is being produced by the other. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's just an association. It does not have a causal connection, does not mean that there is a causal connection. Brain produces the mind. But all this becomes redheading. And you know, um, uh, ordinary people doesn't have the time to engage with these issues enough to refute. And so if you see 100 articles talking like this, and then one or two articles talking the opposite way, like we are doing right now. Mm -hmm. But right now, at the same time that your um, this interview will be broadcast, imagine thousands upon thousands of interviews will be broadcast, which will deepen the materialist prejudice. So we are just not being able to compete in that kind of way. The one way to compete, we are already doing it. I told you about this um, institution where we are giving uh, master's and PhD degrees, and they are convinced because they are getting all the details. Any psychologist that comes to talk to me, in a matter of just two hours, I can start changing his worldview. 
beginning. I'm not claiming that miraculously he changes right away. In fact, miraculously changing right away is not the right way of teaching anyway. But I will I will make it clear enough for them to realize that there is something definitely wrong with just as the non idea of non-locality. Well, I'll tell you what though, from my point of view, I believe that there is more curiosity about these things now, more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Absolutely. And these conversations plant seeds that they yes. might not flourish today. They might flourish in a few years, but they're planting seeds. And I think that is the way that these great shifts happen because Absolutely. people will start, people are talking about quantum physics at parties. What? <laughs> 30 or 40 yeah. years ago, that was academia only. But, but now is people are talking about, do you know about quantum entanglement? Or do you know about the split, uh, the split uh, the theory or this? Or these kind of conversations on a YouTube show. These were things that were not talked about. Quantum physicists were not being brought onto shows to talk about theories. So people are interested. And I do think there is a shift happening. Um, and I think we do have a fighting chance to shift out of this older materialist, industrial way of looking at our lives that are not serving us anymore. It served us for a while, but doesn't serve us now. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. And that is the hope of the future. The new generation um, is going to make a huge difference. I find this all the time. You know, um, the last workshop I'm in Brazil right now, we just finished a workshop on love. And the 16-year-old showed up. Oh, wow. With her, of course, but, but she showed up. And she was thriving with these concepts like non-locality, how... Love, because of its strong locality, is why it is so makes such an impression on us. It really connects us with the other that we love. It forever gets rid of the idea that I am isolated. That loneliness that comes to a Newtonian individual is completely absent for a quantum individual. Once you realize quantum physics, there is no loneliness for you. That's so true because the delusion is that we are separate. The ego has created the delusion that we are separate. But exactly. once you understand you are a bigger, a bigger part of a whole, that we are all connected, you don't, the depression goes down, loneliness goes down. I was talking to a neuroscientist the other day who's been studying the brain on faith and on God for 30 years. Yeah. And depression goes down, suicide goes down. You handle pro problems in life differently. Not religion, just faith. It's just, just a, that there's something bigger than you and that you're connected to it. That concept is extremely powerful. Extremely important. And this is the concept that, that modern materialist science has gotten rid of. And by doing that, it is literally destroying our civilization. Because yeah. we don't feel identity with our environment anymore, we destroy the environment. Because we don't feel identity anymore with our fellow human beings. We read the news in Texas just this week. A neighbor was being simply criticized by the neighbors. And he uh, brought his gun out and just killed people at random and ran away. This kind of thing would never happen with connected people, with even connected for a moment. But how can people get so alienated, so separate independent objects? That without hesitation, they did the machine-like thing. Okay, I have a machine that can kill people and I'm alienated, so I'll kill these people and run away. 
So uh, this is an extreme example of what materialism is doing to us. And of course, you know, what happens is that nobody says, oh, it is the worldview that happens, worldview change that happened 60 years ago that is causing all this. Nobody makes that connection. Mm-hmm. And this is the or people who do make this connection, their voices just uh, get lost in the thousands of other voices which don't make this connection. But of course, you are also right because the young people do hear, the young people do see connection. They do interpret, you know, um, the other news that is uh, attracting everybody's attention that young women feel suicidal so much, one in uh, five. Because of, because of social media. Right. So um, uh, people are aware that this is causing havoc with also our young people. So many young people feeling suicidal. So many young people feeling that they're lost without meaning and purpose. So we will see more and more of that occupying Wall Street, that kind of movement. Um, Young people will bring that up and we will see changes. My uh, feeling is that we will see changes. My friend, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all my guests because I can keep talking to you for hours, by the way. Uh, This is an endless conversation, to say the least. Uh, But these are a few questions I ask all my guests. What is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Living a fulfilled life, fulfillment to me is satisfaction. Satisfaction is a kind of happiness and expansion of consciousness. So what we have to do in order to be fulfilled, we have to get that expansion of consciousness experience as frequently as you can during the waking hours. And free our unconscious enough to not even um, even have basically a good experience during our sleep, because we do remember a little bit of it. We know if we slept happily or we slept unhappily. So um, this is the key, you know, I have developed with uh, psychologist Sunita Patan a scale of happiness where we have actually shown that spiritual work, meditation, creativity, and all that really does create states of higher and higher happiness. People do develop this ability of having more and more satisfaction in their lives, more and more expansion of consciousness to include others. And then they can be free of physical disease, mental disease, not only that, they can start scaling the ladder of happiness. If you could go back and speak to your younger self, go into a time machine, which we're talking about <laughs> physics. If we can go into a time machine and you can speak to your younger self, what advice would you give him? Well, I would say that, look, um, try to change your worldview as quickly as you can, because that will open you up towards how to live properly. I was living completely isolated as an intellectual before I was 37 and that time that intuition came. And ever since I gave up total dependence on intellectuality and that's really the key of everything. For intellectual person, there are other things that can also capture it. So there are other kinds of ways to get deranged as well. But, but intellectuals, I being one myself, I know is a state to nowhere because you really become disconnected from consciousness, from love, from your own body. And that is just such a uh, unfortunate road towards loneliness and unhappiness. What can I say? Einstein, towards the end of his life, lamented to his friend, you found one thing that I never found, which is love. Look mm-hmm. at this person who is the greatest, most creative person we recognize, so far as outer creativity is concerned, is acknowledging that I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, and I'm unhappy. 
Mm. And, and the lot of every materialist, rationalist, no exception. How do you define God or source? Well, this is that unity consciousness that we're talking about. I mean, we, we can, we can uh, get very confused by uh, making God in terms of our images. But if we don't do that, if we try to accept the fact that, okay, this better be very abstract. It better not be something that I can put in front of me and visualize because it is, after all, the ground of all being. So let's not make hasty images. Or if we make hasty images, realize that this is only part of what God is, only an archetype that leads us to what God is. So the best word we can find is really non-locality, non-local oneness, oneness without an exchange of signal. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. What And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Okay. The ultimate purpose of life, therefore, is to follow these portions of God called archetypes with values that that will lead us to God, namely love, beauty, justice, truth, wholeness, of course, even power, even abundance. Those things are also part of that, but you have to combine power with love, abundance with love. So love is a very crucial point that marks our, uh, makes us different. People can search for being rich without love. People can search for being powerful without love, like Putin. But if we combine it with love, then we can become a Gandhi, we can become a Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, and then we become capable of loving people as well. And then we'll use our power to share power, to empower people. And same thing with truth. If scientists combine truth with love, then they will explore truth to empower people, not to become manipulators of people. And where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing? Okay. This is a very, very good question. Amitgoswami.org. That's the website. So you just come to the website and everything that I've talked about is available on the website. A-M-I-T-G-O-S-W-A-M-I.org. And where? And do you have any final uh, messages for the audience? Yes. The final message is, of course, your path to oneness the purpose of life, the meaning of life, ask those questions. And if the answers come, it will come. It will be in form of one of those archetypes that I have mentioned. Follow that archetype. Believe what Jesus Campbell said. Follow your bliss. The archetypes are our bliss to follow. And then life becomes happy. As Alex asked me earlier, what gives us fulfillment? These archetypes, purposeful life gives us fulfillment. Dr. Amit, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope it it is one of those seeds that has dropped in many minds around the world, my friend. I appreciate you and the amazing work you're doing. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. I want to thank Amit so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 279. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.